and the sun was just beginning to rise. As the sun came up, we were bathed in that lovely, lovely sunrise light and took deep breaths of beautiful, pure air. And then we looked back, and I was just standing outside the door of this hut, and the sun shone straight onto the arm that I had been dissecting. Suddenly, this blazing sunlight of the sunrise focused, as it seemed, streamed into the door there, and there was the answer, absolutely displayed in perfection. Because doctors had been treating ulcers on leprosy patients' feet, they had a name for it. They called it non-healing flesh. But they simply said, it's no use your operating on a leprosy patient because it won't heal. They have non-healing flesh. And this is a little discouraging, but we believe that this could be overcome. All started in a hut in the middle of the night. That's right. <laughs> Away by near the beach of Tirumani, Chingalpat. How, how soon after that did you kind of move almost totally into leprosy? Well, there wasn't any particular moment. The thing is that all the time this was happening, whereas when I arrived in 46, we were exactly two qualified surgeons. Within the next four years, we had Dr. Betts, the famous thoracic surgeon. We had Dr. Jacob Chandy famous neurosurgeon, brain surgeon, and uh, all kinds of specialists were gradually converging on the medical college. And so I was able not to be so concentrated on teaching, but I never gave up the teaching. And finally he was released and came back. And so Margaret took a deep sigh of relief and said, well, at last I can get back to something I, I really know about. And she shook hands with Victor Rambo and said, goodbye. He said, oh, no, you're not going. <laughs> now you're going to become a real ophthalmologist, and I will teach you. Paul, this has been wonderful. We've been sitting here for a long time, but uh, <laughs> I hope we haven't worn you out. But hearing these stories and how God worked through your life, I think it's just a wonderful testimony of God's grace and oh, what he is. does with a life that's willing. There's, there's no question about it. And it's, it's so exciting. And, you know, they used to say to my father when he came home on furlough, Oh, Mr. Brand, the sacrifices you've made, you could have stayed in England and had a comfortable life. And he would, he would get furious. It's the only thing that would really make him turn red. He said, I haven't sacrificed anything. And I would uh, repeat the same, that apart from the fact of the family, leaving the family, our life has been an absolute delight. I wouldn't change it for anything. There's no money that could tempt run away from that. Very, very simple lifestyle, but to see changes to see students changing, to see patients changing. And this time, we've just, just come back from India. Some other people whom we operated on and whose lives have been touched to see how they've turned out and they come bringing their children, and in one case, their grandchildren. You just can't beat it. Well, we pause in our story for station identification. <laughs> like me, you're probably saying, don't stop that tape. I want to hear the rest of the interview. So let me keep uh, station identification a little bit short here. Welcome to uh, another issue of Christian Doctors Digest. And I know, like me, you're just really excited to hear the last part of this interview with Dr. Paul Brand that we started on the last CDD tape. As many of you know, Dr. Paul Brand is a world-renowned hand surgeon and leprosy specialist, a missionary to India for a good part of his career, and then finished his career actually working in this country in Carville, Louisiana, uh, for the public service. He's a well-known author 
and has uh, impacted many of our lives that have been involved in medicine. So it's going to be great to spend some more time with him. We also have two other wonderful interviews in store. One is on student ministry. It's a conversation with uh, Roger Matkin, our area director in San Antonio, as well as some testimonies from students. I really want you to hear this because I think it's important for each of us to really know what's going on. Uh, We're helping to pay and we're helping to pray for this ministry that's happening on nine out of ten medical and dental school campuses in this country. And being brought up to date on how we can do that better, I think, is important. And then our last interview is with Laurel Broomfall on her book, Life on Hold, Finding Hope in the Face of Serious Illness. It's an excellent look with a lot of great tools to help us in dealing with patients that are terminally ill or seriously ill. So to keep this uh, station identification short, let's get right back to Dr. Paul Brand. And uh, this watchman hung a hurricane lantern on the rafters over our head and uh, said, we'll be back for the body at six in the morning. And there we were, the three of us, with this dim, dim light from a single wick hurricane lantern. There was no electricity, but fortunately, by the grace of God, we had each got a pen torch and uh, the surgical assistant on one side and me on the other started dissecting from the shoulder down to the fingertips and from the hip down to the feet all the nerves, supplying all the muscles. And on her side, she took specimens at about every two centimeters and gave them to the technician to put into formalin, having marked where they were. And on my side, I left them in continuity, just exposing them. We could never see more than a six-inch circle of light. And so we never saw the, the whole of a nerve. We worked away and worked away, and it was a stuffy place and terrible atmosphere, a kind of a generalized stench, and this crazy swinging light. We worked for four hours, or maybe near five, and I began finding along the course of these nerves, the nerve would look normal for a few inches, and then it would look swollen and inflamed, and then it would look normal, and then maybe another piece. And, uh, and the same was in other, other nerves. Some were normal all the way down, but at the elbow, for example, the median nerve looked normal all the way down. The ulnar nerve came down normal from the axilla, and then going around the epicondyle, it was swollen, and uh, nothing made any sense. I could never think why these things were like this. Obviously, the swollen, inflamed areas were where the thing had been damaged by the disease. But the in-between areas looked so beautiful. And so, as the dawn began to rise, we knew they were coming, and we had to get things stitched up. But we just couldn't stand the atmosphere in that place. And so we said, let's all have a breath of fresh air. When we swung the door open, the sea was over there, and the sun was just beginning to rise. As the sun came up, we were bathed in that lovely, lovely sunrise light and took deep breaths of beautiful, pure air. And then we looked back, and I was just standing outside the door of this hut, and the sun shone straight onto the arm that I had been dissecting. Suddenly, this blazing sunlight of the sunrise, focused as it seemed, streamed into the door there, and there was the answer, absolutely displayed, in perfection, and I could see that the nerves, as they went deeper and then more superficial and then deeper, wherever they were deep to a muscle, they were normal. Wherever they came close to the skin, you had this 
thing. And it was that picture which I shall never forget, which just blazed out of this old, old deformed man. And that, incidentally, was the first time anybody in the world had ever linked temperature with the activity of the mycobacterium leprae. They knew that the ulnar nerve was thickened at the elbow because you could feel it, but they didn't know why or what the factor was. And even we didn't know at that time. But as we studied it more closely, finally the answer came and I had little temperature, little needle thermometers. And in living patients, I was able to put the thermometer down to various nerves and take the temperature at the place where the nerve was. And I found that if the nerve itself was of a temperature anything like body temperature, the nerve wasn't harmed. And leprosy never attacks, never multiplies in a situation of body temperature, human body temperature. But they'll do it in the skin. That's why it's thought of as a skin disease, because the skin is never as hot as underneath. And all the nerves that are deep, like the sciatic nerve and the spinal cord and the brain and so forth, they're always perfectly safe. You never get them damaged. But whenever they come near the skin, and particularly when you get further away from the body, down towards the feet and hands and fingers, then they get, the nerve gets destroyed. And uh, then we were able to test it out with having patients wear sleeves and uh, things to keep them warm. But at least it enabled us to have a real list of reliable muscles. We knew now how we could detect a muscle that would, however much the leprosy wasn't cured, or we could use that any muscle supplied by that nerve as, as transfers and transplants to do another job and uh, get the hand properly, properly balanced. So that was another... And all started in the hut in the middle of the night. That's right. <laughs> Away by near the beach of Tirumani, Chingalpat. How, how soon after that did you kind of move almost totally into leprosy? Or? Well, there wasn't any particular moment. The thing is that all the time this was happening, whereas when I arrived in 46, we were exactly two qualified surgeons. Within the next four years, we had Dr. Betts, the famous thoracic surgeon. We had Dr. Jacob Chandy famous neurosurgeon, brain surgeon, and uh, all kinds of specialists were gradually converging on the medical college. And so I was able not to be so concentrated on teaching, but I never gave up the teaching. Mm -hmm. I was always uh, on the teaching staff, and I always gave certain types of lectures I gave myself. Uh, and, of course, the other remarkable thing is that from Carville, USA, was coming the new drug, Dapsone, so that leprosy could be treated, because at the time we first started looking at it, we were dealing with raw, active leprosy. Wasn't and that more, scary, not knowing how it was incurable well, disease? My, my assistant, Dr. Bulgins, she was a, a woman from Ceylon. She was dead scared, but not scared so much for herself as for me, mm -hmm. because she was sure that I would prick myself or cut myself and get leprosy. And she would always put iodine and try to stop an operation and pull off my gloves and if I did anything like that. And of course, as you know, if ever you prick yourself in surgery, it's always the left index finger mm -hmm. because the right hand takes the needle holder and the circular needle goes through and then the left hand catches it and pulls it away. And sometimes in catching it, you get a prick. And I, I kept a, a map of all my, of my hand until finally I had 13 marks on that map, each one labeled with the name of the patient and the type of leprosy and the hospital number, so that uh, if I did develop leprosy, I would know which patient it was from whom I'd caught it. But then by the time I got 13, and several of them were on the left index finger, I thought, well, 
Even if I do get leprosy, it isn't going to help very much to keep the map size. I quit. <laughs> when did you start really doing, you know, you begin to understand the issue, then you kind of, you're just kind of telling me that you begin to start doing muscle transplants and reconstructing. I mean, talk a little bit about that. Actually, we did what Bunnell, the sort of grandfather of hand surgery in America, had taught me for a uh, ulnar paralysis, and that was to um, take the flexor sublimus, flexor superficialis, from each finger because it already had a flexor profundus. So each finger had two flexors, and we took the sublimus flexor from each finger, pulled out the tendon, we cut it, pulled it out of the wrist, and then rerouted it to the back of the hand to serve as a, well, to, in, in front of the ligament and into the lateral band so that his old flexor sublimus became an extensor sublimus. So the flexor became an extensor, and the terminal flexor profundus became the main flexor. And uh, it worked very well. And, of course, he was absolutely astonished. When I went back to India last month, uh, I saw one of our earliest patients who'd had that operation, that kind of operation done. But we don't do that operation now because the fact that you've now got an extensor for the first joint and no prime flexor, you tend to reverse the deformity and make them bend backwards at the proximal joint and only forwards at the other so that it looks a little bit ugly, but it's still useful. And far better than it what they had previously was. How, how was it raising the children and Margaret when all this was going on? I mean, well, you, you were breaking medical barriers. And, oh, uh, she had more children, and it's entirely her fault. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we finished up with six. She was very, very busy with them. And she home, did homeschooling as well as being pediatric. And then another thing that she didn't choose in fact, she did the opposite of choosing. When she'd had our next child, by that time, the person who had left, and in leaving, had left the gap in pediatrics that Margaret had filled, she had returned from fellow, and Margaret wasn't any longer needed in pediatrics. So uh, when she'd had the baby, after two weeks, the director of the hospital sent a little note and said, Margaret, we don't want to hurry you, <laughs> but we are badly in need of some help in the eye hospital. So Margaret immediately, without any hesitation, turned the note over and wrote on the back, saying, I don't mind being hurried, but I'm sorry, I don't know anything about ophthalmology. You'll have to look for somebody else. And so she thought, that's bad. <laughs> and uh, the note came back with the same pune, with a little subscript saying, you'll learn, start Monday. <laughs> this is on Friday. Oh and see, because of our dislocated training in London during World War II, Margaret never had learned ophthalmology. It was the, very, it was the only thing that she said definitely she could not do. She would have a go at almost any other thing, but not ophthalmology. Her first day on duty, there was one other doctor who did know something about it, and Margaret, just the two of them, and they had 400 outpatients. Oh, my. It was a time of epidemics of pink eye and these various other things. And poor mother, she had the book open in front of her. But she gradually, gradually got the hang of it all. And then the chief of ophthalmology, who was a very famous ophthalmologist, really an American, called Victor Rambo, he had been called by his mission to another hospital, which had no doctors. And finally he was released and came back. And so Margaret took a deep sigh of relief and said, well, at last I can get back to something I, I really know about. And she shook hands with Victor Rambo and said, goodbye. He said, oh, no, you're not going. Now you're going to become a real ophthalmologist, and I will teach you. And for the next 
year or more, she became a one-time resident of a famous, experienced, wonderful ophthalmologist. Mm. And she really became an ophthalmologist and took part in eye camps and all the other exciting things that he was doing. And then one day she went to an eye camp and when they had done about a hundred cases... Like cataracts? Or? Cataracts, yes. Yeah. Uh, cataract surgery. They were packing up the camp and putting the portable tables and things back into the van. She saw a little group of, of men standing off to one side and she said to her helper, what do those people want? Oh, they're lepers. Just as they said to me when I... They're just lepers. And they've probably got eye problems. They, they don't realize that this is just a cataract camp. So she said, well, I'd better go and just have a look at them. So she went over and she looked at their eyes and couldn't understand what she saw. One of them had an ulceration in the cornea. Another one had a lepoma, I think. But she doesn't remember exactly. All she was, knew was that these were leprosy patients and they wanted help. Uh, and she didn't know what to do. She'd never seen it. And Victor Rambo didn't know what to do. So then she started visiting Karagiri, our new leprosy hospital that we put up near Velour. And then uh, Ernest Fritchie, at that time the director at Karagiri, saw that she was interested in the eyes. And he said, well, you know, you won't really know what is happening until you take a series of 500 unselected patients and record exactly what you see. Then you'll know what's common and how long they've had it and so forth. And so she did a formal survey of 500 patients and uh, found an extraordinary proportion of them had either very early or, or very, sometimes very advanced leprosy problems. And that uh, probably was maybe the first really scientific analysis of a, of a series of leprosy patients to see the eye, what the eye is doing. And then she became really interested and began concentrating on the leprosy eye and then started the eye clinic at the leprosy hospital. And, and so by that time, we were both, both in involved the leprosy. In, in the leprosy. Looking back on it, Paul, uh, were there times you got discouraged? I'm sure there were. These boys, when their hands were corrected, you see, they had been clawed, and therefore, in the clawed position, they weren't exposing their fingertips to activity. Mm-hmm. But when we were encouraging them to work, teaching them how to use their hands, and their fingertips were into everything, we made them, oh, in the rehab center, which we built for them. We had about 20, 25 boys there at a time, and uh, they all lived there, and they did a little gardening and grew some crops and worked at tailoring and uh, a number of different skills they learned. But every evening they had to gather together and look at each other's hands and see. And if they found a wound on the hand, as often as not, the person who had the wound didn't know that he was there. And so they took him back through the day and looked at the tools that he'd been using. And they might find a spade with a handle that had a splinter of some sort. And they'd see a little blood stain on it. So this would be a clue. The most difficult thing, I think, was one or two cases where we'd seen a person in the evening and then he'd come to us first thing in the morning with the end of his finger missing. And the boy said to me, he said, there you are, you see. <laughs> we told you that the fingers disappear in the night. <laughs> and it had just disappeared. And the next night, we had somebody watching through the door. And this guy went to bed, and there was a rat. And sure enough, and as soon as he was asleep, the rat came across the room and uh, sniffed at his fingers and nudged the finger. When he didn't wake him, just started having a meal. Mm. This is one of the reasons why people so often say that the fingers just disappear in leprosy. And the rats just eat them. 
And that was a challenge. That started us with our um, cat factory. We, uh, <laughs> I, we had at home a very active male cat. And we got several females and uh, went through the mysteries of impregnation. <laughs> and uh, every patient who left at that time went home with a kitten. That stopped the whole thing. Wow. Kind of a different type of medical treatment. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. How many years were you in, in India altogether before you moved back to the, to the States? And I went in 46 and left in 64, which is about 18 18 years. 18, 19, yeah. How did you know God was leading you that direction to come back? To this is the kids. Yeah. Oh, yes. We would have stayed. You see, whereas my parents, when they left us kids in England, the grandmother and these two women, these two wonderful aunties of ours, just gave their whole lives to taking care of us. Well, when we were in, on our early fellow, there was a couple of uh, people who had been students, medical students, when we were medical students, and they'd gotten married, fine Christian couple, and they didn't have children, they couldn't have children. And by the time they'd been that way for maybe 10 years, they said to us, look, we've always wanted to have children, and now we're thinking about adopting. If you want to leave your children in England, we'd be glad to take them. So we thought that was wonderful. And we did that with our two eldest children when he was maybe 13 or 14 and she was 11. She actually chose to stay with him. She said, we can't leave Christopher in England all by himself. So she stayed as well. And that was very, very, very hard. That was our biggest trial. The only sacrifice mm -hmm. that we've ever made in, med in missionary work, everything else has been pure joy. And it turned out that in the years that they had had no children, they had begun to have a beautiful home, and their home was their precious child. Mm. And our kids had grown up in the wilds of, not quite the wilds of India, but they were pretty rough and tough. It just didn't, didn't work out very well, particularly for the girl. She was just coming into being a woman, and uh, she wasn't going to see us, as far as they could tell, for five years. Mm. So we said goodbye to her as a kind of fairly skinny tomboy, and we came back and she was a full woman mm -hmm. at her boarding school, which is a very good Christian boarding school. She was climbing a tree and fell off, broke her complex fracture at the lower end of her humerus and of her radius. I had a letter from her and, and then later from the doctor. So I wrote to Seddon, who was the chief of hand surgery in the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital, and asked him to, to see her. He said it looked as if she had Boltman's ischemic contracture of her forearm. That was tough. Yeah. She didn't, praise the Lord. It was purely a nerve injury. And it took a couple of years for the nerve to grow down. The surgeon who operated on her, on the day of her injury, exposed the nerve, reduced the fracture, put screws in. But because it is a company, the two fractures, he put her into a straight plaster and told her that he would come back and, and get the elbow fixed little by little, a little later on. Well, he, he went home and died. Oh he had Hodgkin's disease, and she was the last case he operated on. And no orthopedist took over from him for some time. Oh, it's a complicated story, but she had a, a tough time. And it result, she had this paralysis, a lot of physiotherapy, and uh, really hard. And yet, she is the cleanest whole-time Christian of the whole family. They've all come to love the Lord, but she is whole-time. She's written a book, and... Uh, and now has a degree in Christian counseling and is teaching Christian counseling. She's, it's, it's a great, she's a, a fine, fine person. She's still in England. She very much missed having a home. 
So because of the kids and that situation after that five years, you came back to England? Then we knew that uh, if we have children, and we had six, that they have to come at the top of our responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And then it was that I tried to find a job in England uh, where I would be uh, allowed to continue my research in leprosy, which would mean going overseas fairly frequently. And whereas there were plenty of jobs available, none of them were, were prepared. It was the National Health Service, sure. and it's a very narrow range of options. They were quite happy for me to work only one day a week or two weeks in a month, but to take two months off in a year, it just didn't fit into the system at all. And I was working for World Health Organization, traveling around the world, lecturing in many different countries. On my way, I had to lecture at Carville in Louisiana and describe the rehab program. And at the end of it, the director, who was a fine Norwegian-born doctor, he said, Dr. Brand, it has become very clear to me that your patients, your leprosy patients in India, have a better program than mine do in the United States of America. <laughs> and I cannot accept that. <laughs> uh, he said, could you, could you come and set up your program? It might, you might be able to do it in two years, come on a two-year term and set up that program here. And uh, then I said, well, my wife and, and kids and... She's an ophthalmologist. And he said, we, we need an ophthalmologist. We'll put her on the staff, too. <laughs> and uh, so, following tradition, that two years became 22 years in the public health service. Everything just fitted in wonderfully. <laughs> the previous year, the year before I came to America, somebody had pulled some strings, and I was to receive the Lasker Award. And the Lasker people were going to pay for me to come from India to New York to receive it. And that only happens every three years. And so they always get three awards at the same time every third year. And I was the winner for one year. And Mary Switzer, who was the chief of rehabilitation in Washington, was the next year. And uh, health minister from Norway was the third year. And uh, so we had to go to this big case in New York. And they'd kind of messed the program up a bit and postponed the award ceremony. And until the award ceremony, they put us three recipients in a kind of green room to one side. And so for more than two hours, hmm. we were just stuck in there on our own, not allowed to go outside, while the rest of the meeting went on. And so we talked to each other, and I got talking to Mary Switzer, and she was fascinated with what could be done. And she was sure that America wasn't doing this yet. And when I actually came to Carville a couple of years later, I sent her a little note, because we'd gotten quite friendly. And she took all her, her assistants and staff members, and they descended on Carville. Hmm. And the director was terrified to have all the top Washington people come down. And she said, she looked at the place and went along the corridor, she said, you know, this is antiquity. Here you've got corridors that are not even painted, and, and uh, all these patients and other countries are getting ahead of America. And I uh, said, I'm going to see to it that you have every facility that you need. You just tell me how much it's going to cost and we'll, we'll provide it from Washington. Oh. And she meant what she said. Anything I asked for, I, had, I was able to hire engineers from Louisiana State University. I could hire prosthetists and orthodists and computer specialists and all kinds of things. And we had a real first class. And many of the things that had been kind of theories out in India, we were able to make them into yeah. publishable facts. Yeah. And uh, so it was a very, very good situation. 
Paul, this has been wonderful. We've been sitting here for a long time, but uh, I hope we haven't worn you out. But hearing these stories and how God worked for your life, and it's just a wonderful testimony of God's grace and oh, what he is. does with a life that's willing. There's, there's no question about it. And it's, it's so exciting. And, you know, they used to say to my father when he came home on furlough, Oh, Mr. Brand, the sacrifices you've made, you could have stayed in England and had a comfortable life. And he would, he would get furious. It's the only thing that would really make him turn red. He said, I haven't sacrificed anything. And I would repeat the same, that apart from the factor of the family, leaving the family, and today I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that. I'd keep them out. I think that the homeschooling, if we'd gone on homeschooling, even if it was inferior, they'd have been with us at home, and that would have been the right thing to do. But as it was, we felt that this was what we had to do. And apart from that one single thing, our life has been an absolute delight. I wouldn't change it for anything. There's no money that could tempt run away from that. Very, very simple lifestyle, but to see changes, to see students changing, to see patients changing. And this time, we just just come back from India. Some other people whom we operated on and whose lives have been touched, to see how they've turned out and they come bringing their children, and in one case, their grandchildren. You just can't beat it. And there's no greater thrill in seeing God use you and, and to change other people's lives. Yes. Paul, you know, you've been so much a part of CMDS for many of these years. Probably most people have no idea how you got involved with the organization or the impact you've had through it or it's had on you. Could you comment on that? Well, yes, it, uh, it started, of course, in, in London with the Christian Medical Fellowship. I was there in really its early days with uh, Howard Guinness and Douglas Johnson and some of the early giants who recognized the, the significance of having a Christian unit that students could gather around. You see, we were, I was learning anatomy and physiology at the time when one of my teachers was J.B.S. Haldane, a pioneer of evolutionary theory. Mm. And University College London was really, one shouldn't use the word hotbed, but it was head over heels in love with with evolution and with the concept, the idea that one would still believe in, in a creator God and to be a student in a medical college at that time was the worst possible environment. And it was that, I think, where Howard Ganes and some of the early pioneers of the Christian Medical Fellowship recognized the need to, to have a student organization and a, it was primarily student organization at first. And there was wonderful conferences at Swanwick and it, it was an enormous stimulus to me particularly, as I think I mentioned, that it was um, at the time when I was concerned about my father's death and whether it was God's will or not. And and my mind was open to all kinds of theories. But it was an enormous help. And being able to get together with uh, people like Stanley Weller and Monica Hogman, and I can remember so many of them. And, of course, it was the beginning of my wife Margaret's spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And then, when we came to this country, I think that I was actually present at the birth of CMDS, CMDA, because at that time, the Christian Medical Society was uh, under the chairmanship of uh, Raymond Knighton. Mm -hmm. And in Chicago, during the annual meetings, which I attended and enjoyed, and I thought very highly of Raymond Knighton, a number of the Christian doctors who were part of the Christian Medical Society felt that it really would be better to have the society under a medical leadership. I don't know the, exactly the background of it, but that was the occasion. I think it was while I was there in that thing that Raymond and the others decided that he would go off on his own and found MAP, Medical Assistance Program. So I was there right at the beginning, and 
I, I'm not going to get into the history, but, but it has been a, a tremendous help. And where I've had contact with medical schools, I've always felt that it is very helpful for Christian doctors to have a forum where they can meet and discuss and compare problems and share resources and form groups and so forth. But students are in desperate need because they come raw into the medical school situation. It really is important to have a group of Christian young students getting together and getting opportunities to study together and to pray together and to commit themselves and recommit themselves together. It makes a power of difference and, and it has in, in, in my own life. And as I say, it is the way in which my wife was first converted. And if I'm in a position to give a message to Christian staff in medical colleges, I feel that the most important thing that can be done is for somebody who is a teacher in a medical college to nail his flag to the mast, say, here I stand. I am a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe in the God who created the earth. And to have a senior person to whom they can look and into whose basement they can gather from time to time to play mm. table tennis and drink some lemonade. And uh, <laughs> uh, that is a, an enormously valuable thing that any Christian teacher can do. And I think that one of the foci for the future should be an extra appeal to all Christian teachers in medicine and surgery and gynecology and whatever to say who they are. Put up not only their diplomas in, in medicine and surgery, but the insignia of the Christian Medical Dental Association and indicate that this is where you stand. This is the single thing that I would, I would want to see improved in this country. Well, Paul, you've been such an example to me and to so many others, and I want to thank you for just sharing your life with us. It inspires me, encourages me, and I know many other people that are listening. And our prayer that God's going to continue to, to use you and make you a blessing in many people's lives as he has over these last 80 years plus now. Well, And uh, we just thank God for you. Thank you very much. Wasn't that a great interview? I, I could have literally spent two or three days talking to Dr. Paul Brand. Uh, it just uh, so much that his testimony and his life uh, impacted mine. I know it's impacted yours as well. I think he touches on a really important subject as he closed the interview, and that is our responsibility uh, to really bring on the next generation of Christian doctors. I was reading last night a book called Christ and Culture. It's a real Christian classic. And the point that was made in there is that we're really just one generation away from losing our culture. If we don't have someone who transmits what's happened in the past to this culture, uh, then the one that will follow uh, after we're dead and gone will be totally different than anything we've ever experienced. And nowhere is that more true in medicine, especially as we see it under such tremendous assault uh, in, in how we do it, how it is a profession, how we deal with ethics, how we value our patients, just a huge list of, of issues that students face today that we really didn't face when we went through training. 
So I think more than ever before, every uh, Christian medical and dental student needs a mentor. They need a Christian teacher in their institution. I'm so thankful that over 400 of our members are involved in academics, and I think we need to pray and support and encourage them in every way that we can. If you'd like to get to know uh, Dr. Brand and his uh, his stories and his writing uh, even more, I encourage you to pick up some copies of his books, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, In His Image, God's Forever Feast, and The Gift of Pain. Uh, you may have already read them, but they make wonderful gifts for a student or for a colleague or for just someone that you know. They're not just targeted towards uh, people in the healthcare profession. But what a wonderful way to minister and to carry on the legacy that he has given us. You know, the other point that Dr. Brand makes so well is the impact that missions can have in this country and around the world. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't been overseas recently or perhaps never been overseas at all, uh, to take some time out of your busy schedule uh, to serve with Global Health Outreach or in our academic exchange program with uh, the Commission uh, on International Medical Affairs. Uh, I'll tell you something. It will transform your life. It will recharge your batteries. It will uh, make you a better doctor at what you do every day. Um, it, it just rejuvenates you. I just came back a few weeks ago from a week in Honduras. And as usual, before I went, I was saying, why did I ever agree to do this? I'm too busy. But I tell you, I had one of the most fantastic weeks of the last year. And uh, God worked in me and through me. It was such a blessing to, to have a stethoscope around my neck and, a, and occasionally a scalpel in my hand as we did some minor surgery. But more than that, it was an opportunity for me to share my faith, led a number of patients to Christ uh, after I examined them, uh, able to mentor a resident, some medical students, some high school students, uh, to interrelate with uh, those in the medical profession and the dental profession that were with us on that trip. And I just came back enthused and excited uh, more about what I did every day. God did a new work in my life. So I encourage you to, to give a call to Christian Medical and Dental Association. Get a week uh, or even longer on your calendar. Uh, there's trips throughout the fall. In fact, uh, one of the great uh, trips to go on would be some of those in early December. I think that's a great time as we're focusing on what Christ did for us uh, to, to go and take one of your family members with you and minister overseas. But uh, we have two to three trips a month, and so there's always something that can fit your schedule. I encourage you to go to our website, cmdahome.org, or give us a call here at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, and we'll get you set up. It'll be some time well invested.